Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game Is About Glory. My name is Steph, and joining me are Ram, Gareth, and Milo. Hello, chaps. Hi, Steph. Hi, Steph. Hey, Steph. Excellent. Good to have you all on. And whatever the ructions, whatever the disappointments, and regardless of the fact our main striker hasn't got much beyond a better fright jogging pace this 2021 season, these are starting to once again become happy days at the lane. In the middle of the week, we found ourselves five points off fourth place, two games in hand, with the first of those against Brentford, and a manager in Antonio Conte who, despite his masterful media work, is surely eyeing a run into that fourth spot, which he will then guard like a rabid, vicious dog, guarding its owner, or something like that anyway. It's fair to say that as reasoned and balanced as we consider ourselves, this pod fully expected today's show to be discussing six points across the matches against the aforementioned Brentford last Thursday, and then Norwich earlier today. So, we are therefore delighted that we will be able to discuss the 2-0 win over Brentford and today's 3-0 win over Norwich, which, for mathematicians out there, means we won a total of five goals to nil this last week. And later on, we will each be expressing what we feel were the ones that got away. Players we were extremely close to signing, who in their respective eras might very well have made an enormous difference to our fortunes at that moment in time. But, you know... Let's kick off the pod with this week's intro question. Yep, that one where you learn a teeny, teeny bit more about us than perhaps you wanted to know, like the lads did about me earlier, actually, we were just off uh, off record. Uh, and the question isn't boxes or briefs or even whether you share. Anyway, it's what's your favourite hour of the day? And I think I'm going to ask you, Gareth, what's your favourite hour of the day? Kick us off tonight, mate. I'm one of those really irritating people who are morning people and um, I really like getting up early in the morning. I've got into a really good habit of going out for early morning runs and even in the depths of winter, being out at 7am um, going for a run, I'm really lucky to have a very nice park right next to us. Um, it's a really embracing time of the day. So yep, yeah, 7am would be my favourite hour. From up and Adam to Ram, are you up and Adam at that time of the morning? Are you a morning person? I'm more the opposite. I'm more a nocturnal person. I tend to do my best work um, sort of post 10pm. Um, but if I was to nail down an actual hour, I would say at the moment, Mrs. Ram is in is going into her eighth month of pregnancy. Um, so she's uh, as, as active as she is still, she does require a nap um, every day. So right now, nap hour is my favourite hour of the day because it gives me an excuse to have a nap under the guise of being supportive. And what is nap hour? It's normally around 4pm. That's a very civilised, a very civilised thing, I think, a 4pm nap. Very civilised. And when we speak of civility in these circles, where else do we go to but Milo? Possibly the most civilised of all of us. What's your favourite hour? Um, and happy birthday, by oh, the way. <laughs> don't think you're going to get away happy without birthday. saying that. Happy birthday, birthday to, to you. you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to, to you. To you. Happy birthday to you. You are not allowed to cut this and put it on the floor. That's... <laughs> so, what's your favourite hour? <laughs> well, <laughs> funnily enough, I was, I was woken with that sound. Um, my son singing that to me at, at my the very beginning of my favourite hour this morning. I'm an early bird now as well, and I can say. So I think I'm going to say between six and seven. I like really, I like early morning. I, mean, I, I was tempted to go between five and six, but um, I like, yeah, early morning. So, and kind of different, different scenarios. So sat, sat at home having a coffee and reading the papers early in the morning, I really like, um, and just catching up on stuff. But what I was thinking of, so particularly what I really like 
is early morning walks across cities when everyone's waking up and you're seeing a city getting ready. So when I was younger, it would be when I was coming back from a club and walking across you know, central London uh, on the way to get a train home and watching kind of London wake up, I really like. Now it's more likely that I'm on my way somewhere and I've, I've got into town early. Um, but yeah, I really like watching a city kind of wake up and get ready for the day. And the people you see around early in the morning are different from any other time of day. So yeah, people watching very early, you know, early in the day. I mean, this will be of no surprise to anyone uh, listening or to any of us here on the pod. I've, I'm absolutely the opposite. I mean, how can that be of any surprise? And to the point that I like the small hours so much that one of the greatest memories of small hour brilliance I have I have is being in New Delhi and walking around New Delhi at three in the morning and, and, and doing a sort of photo, you know, project for myself because it was completely empty bar people mm. going for these bizarre, um, they were going to church or going to mosque or going to, I mean, it was incredible. There was a lot of activity there, but other than that, it was empty. And that was such a juxtapose of what Delhi usually is. But I am a small hours person. I, I, I sort of wish I wasn't anymore because I enjoy a good night's sleep. But that being said, I do my best work. Same as you, Ram. And, our listeners can't see this, but the way my screen is set up, uh, there's me and Ram on one side, <laughs> and there's Milo and Gareth on the other. It's sort of great. So with that sort of synergy, how can this pod go wrong this week? <laughs> it won't. Just like the week that was didn't really go wrong, other than with the Ballon d'Or. Harry Kane's rather insulting 23rd place. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah, he's got his third golden boot. He topped the assist charts and he skipped England to their first major final since 1966. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous, really, isn't it, uh, that position? Nearly as ridiculous as the whole charade itself, where we were once again left wondering if even Lionel Messi was embarrassed to receive the award again. Looks like he only got it for the Copa America win and the fact he's not bad at football, I suppose. But frankly, guys, I mean, would you agree Eric Dyer has been cheated out of uh, the Ballon d'Or this season, even more than Lewandowski? <laughs> oh, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, Kane clearly ought to ought, should have been in the top 10 and if you look at some of the players there you know that had far worse seasons than him it's a bit of a farce isn't it really it is a farce yeah i think so the pushkas award however might prove to be a brilliant award and one that we give massive amounts of praise to because eric Lamella's north london derby rabona has been nominated for the 2021 fifa pushkas award uh, sunny won it last year for sublime 2019 effort against burnley in december and if Eric's effort takes the prize, it will be back-to-back FIFA Pushkas Awards for Spurs. And Messi will continue having to wait for one despite seven nominations. <laughs> oh, dear. The winner will be announced on January 17th, 2022. Chaps, are we going to be celebrating a historic victory for the greatest Rabona of all time or not? I think it's up there. I think we do have a, we do have a chance. There has been some pretty special goals elsewhere. Yeah, so I, I can't remember what the other nominations are. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd certainly vote for him if I was eligible to vote. I'm, I'm hoping this isn't going to be the next Golden Boy Award. <laughs> <laughs> just going back to the Ballon d'Or, I just I just reminded myself of something a couple of days ago. Um, Michael Owen is a Ballon d'Or winner. Do you remember that? Mm. Wow, was that from 1998? Was that? I from think the, it was when... 2001. Yeah. It was after the hat trick in Germany in the qualifier. And he'd, um, right. he'd and he'd scored two goals in the FA Cup final against Arsenal for Liverpool that calendar year as well. Mm. I think it was probably there was probably a bit of a vacuum then. It was uh, it was in that sort of Ronaldinho 
period, um, or maybe just before Ronaldinho really came to prominence, and you had the old guard on the way out. So yeah, I think I think it was a bit of a vacuum in world superstars at that point. Mm. So just to ask, Rem, did you bring that up because it shows how completely uh, lacking in value the Ballon d'Or actually really is when it comes to it all? I think subconsciously that's what I was doing, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I, I, I think that's a very, very good point, especially when you say that uh, <laughs> Michael Owen won it. Good player for a few seasons, but not a Ballon d'Or winner, really, was he? No. But from a uh, bad Ballon d'Or candidates, I'm sure we can dig out a couple from our 2-0 victory against Brentford. <laughs> Did you like that segue? How awkward was that? Because actually <laughs> there were no Ballon d'Or candidates in this game. It was a fairly straightforward result, I think it's fair to say. Tidy 2-0 victory. So chaps, chime on in. Any thoughts on the 2-0 victory over Brentford? I, th- I think as we'll discuss, there were a lot of areas in common between Brentford and Norwich. For me, it was a fairly ugly but efficient performance. And it's one that I'm going to describe as a gateway performance. So it's the sort of performance that you need where there's new ideas being worked on. They're not all coming off. They're certainly not coming off instinctively. Um, but probably we're playing against an opponent who you know, ultimately are quite inferior to us so we had enough on the on the night to get through fairly comfortably in the end but yeah it's 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 one of those it's not going to live very long in the memory but Mm -hmm. it was an important victory to get us over the line i think you made a good point about um kind of where we're going and for me at the moment it's all about the journey so i'm what i'm looking for is progression and i'm looking for the side to take on conte's ideas and, and, and execute them and i felt that it was our most conte performance to date on Thursday. It, I thought the shape of the team was pretty good. Uh, we were breaking well, so when we turned over the ball, we broke quick and um, uh, and created lots of chances. I'm not too worried about some things going wrong or not you know, not quite happening. It's, it's about the journey for me at the moment. And um, it's certainly felt to me like we were kind of... <laughs> You know, one station further along the line or, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely signs of progress there. I'd agree with you both there. I, in fact, that's what I've got in my notes. I've, I've called it the transitioning grace period where basically we're going, we're, you know, we're kind of taking on um, Conti's systems and uh, ethos. And we've got, we've still got, we've got a bit of a grace period to kind of get it, get f- um, up and running with that. There was a couple of things that worried me, like in you know in the, at the end of the first half, I think we had like seventy eight percent pass completion. It's a small thing, but it's just it, you know I was like that's probably for a top team. That's not really, really where you want to be. You want to be in the kind of mid to late eighties at least. Um, but I'm probably nitpicking with that. Um, I thought you know Brentford were. Uh, the tidy team and could have caused us problems and you know they've got a good chance of staying in the Premier League but I don't I, it wasn't their best showing and I mm. wonder how much of that was actually um, us um, making sure that they couldn't give us their best showing. I think one of the things I noticed about the slightly sloppy passing and I agree I did notice that especially towards the end of the first half but I still think somewhere we're still as a side and as a squad I think we're still adjusting to the the Mm. sheer physicality of the regime and the fitness expectations Mm. I think sometimes it does catch up and you sort of almost have to take a breather in game and the one thing that we are able to do is because we're so well drilled and organized we can ride out some of the technical imperfections that we're showing because the system you know the system supplants all Mm. if you will and I felt that Brentford was a definitely a, a fine example of that. Mm. I mean, in mm. the end, the system once again prevailed. In that game, we were looking to play on the break. So if you're playing on the break, yeah. you're not going to see those um, same kind of possession stats because we weren't looking to hold possession quite so much in that game. And we were breaking quick, which does mean that you're playing some 
kind of high risk balls in order to get into you know create those chances so i think i think partly it's a you know a result of the way we were approaching the game I, I think you know in terms of you know brentford have had some very good results this season and we restricted them to 0.23 xg they barely had a sniff so i think it was a really good say controlled measured performance on the whole um there are a couple of bits that i think you know, might be a concern with some of the better teams we've got coming up but within itself I thought it was, it was okay. I agree with that and I mean I do think again I think as our fitness grows our ability to play you know that very very swift um, should we say adventurous pass counter-attacking mm. football is going to become stronger and stronger I mean I, I, it undoubtedly will and also the more the players see it working mm. I mean there is a trust thing here and I felt that this was this was a game where I really felt the players was starting to believe that all the hard work they've been doing is coming to something. Do we think that the extra day's training and having a week between games was a factor? And could we could we see the benefit of an extra day's training? Isn't that what we had with uh, Poch? Didn't he have us kind of, you know, they had, we had the double training sessions on some days and things like that. And it paid dividends, didn't it? I, I meant with the Burnley game being postponed so right, so, sorry. Um, sorry, yeah. so we got um monday was a full training day rather than a recovery day and it also meant that there'd been seven days between mm. that and the uh the mora game and actually for most of those players more than that you know we had a load of players some players out there had a week and a half off mm. yeah I, I i i would agree with that i think you mentioned it in our chat as well actually and i agreed at the time i think that it could definitely have been a factor i wonder whether that will come into play over christmas as well that it's not often you get a kind of mid-season break pre-Christmas even. So mm. coming up to a really busy period and, and a little bit of a rest there might might really help. I think it's very hard to, to determine exactly, you know, whether we benefit from not playing the Burnley game or not. Of course, the upside is had we played the Burnley game, we would now have the results carried on as they have panned out. We would now be in fourth spot. Um, but as you said, Milo, there is this benefit of an extra day on the training pitch here and there. And I think Conti wants as much of that as he can possibly get. I just think a bit of rest in the legs going into Christmas, you know, might help. I think we're certainly going to need it in the days and weeks to come. So we will segue into the Norwich performance in a minute. And there are certainly a couple of players who's, you know, who are going to be a point of discussion in both games. But, you know, Sanchez came in uh, against Norwich. And uh, uh, Milo, I know you have some thoughts on that. I don't think Sanchez had a particularly great game against Brentford. And I think against the better teams he's going to be targeted his first touch and his passing aren't great and in a team that tries to uh, play across the back line and draw teams onto them before playing out and you know creating to create space it's an issue I think what happened against Brentford quite often was that uh, his first touch was heavy um, he lost the opportunity to pass you know make a progressive pass which meant that he often played safe normally back to Dyer by which time it was kind of rushed to play out from there. So I, in the first half, I counted three occasions where there was a turnover as a, as a result of Sanchez getting a, a weak first touch. And I think you know that we've we've had our easy games now. We've had a, a really soft run of fixtures since you know after Man United, since Conte came in. You know, games up to Christmas now. We've got Wren, Brighton, Leicester, Liverpool, West Ham. They're all good teams. They're all well organised teams. And I think they're all going to target Sanchez. And um, I think it's a risk. Yeah, it's just a, it's a risk. And it's something that I'm concerned about with the, with the fixtures we've got coming up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I agree. I think the way that we play at the moment, particularly with two more functional midfielders, there's a real onus on the two wider central defenders to come out and offer a little bit more on the ball. And this is something that's probably plagued Davidson Sanchez's career since he was at Ajax. 
I think there's a realization is that if you give him enough of the ball, he's going to give it back to you enough as well. So regardless of what he does off the ball, um, what he does with the ball is going to be limited as well. And I think it's going to be more important than we've seen. We'll talk about Ben Davis, how he's really been able to make positive impacts on play mm-hmm. um, on the other side of that. The, the difficulty is, is that I've, I've heard, you know, another, another well-established podcast talk about this, that when you're playing three at the back, your weaker defender, they can be hidden quite well if you play them in the middle of the three, that you don't expose their weaknesses as much. I think Eric Dyer has looked really good, perhaps as a result of playing in the central of those three positions. Whereas I wonder whether Sanchez would um, would maybe be better in the middle of a three. Uh, can I can I come in? Is this is this your weekly defend Dyer slot? <laughs> I'm actually holding back because I've got a couple of things to say at the moment. So so seriously, anyone else who wants to come in because I am going to have a minute. <laughs> I'm just warning you. I just hit the red light on my mic. The red light's flashing. Like, <laughs> calm down. I'll just put Steph on mute and I do the master <laughs> the master mute button. Yeah. I was just going to say on Sanchez centrally. I I think the problem would be is that Conte is looking for the central defender to play deepest of the three and to mop up and um and to do most of the distribution. So. Uh, Dyer particularly is playing a lot of balls out of defence. He's, you know, he's getting, you know, quite often has got the most passes in the team. And actually he's got quite a high success rate, even though he's playing quite a lot of um, long, direct balls. And Sanchez doesn't have that in his locker. That's because he actually can pass a football. I'm sorry, I just have to throw this in. There's this miscon- I know you're not saying he can't, but there is this misconception out there that he can't pass a ball. He can pass a ball. Anyway, I'm back on mute for a moment. Sorry, carry on. He's actually doing very well in that position. <laughs> and, and of the players we've got, I, mean, I think Conte said that he sees Rodon as, as his understudy. Um, there isn't anyone else really who's going to be able to play that role you know as proficiently as Dyer has, has been and I think Dyer um, for me I think he's probably our player of the season at the moment and certainly has been the best player under Conte to date so on Sanchez I, say it, 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 I don't want to lay into the guy because I think there's a big drop off in quality between our first three the you know, first choice centre-backs and, and the three you know understudies and I think you know obviously he got a goal today and he it was his ball out that led to the second goal on Thursday. And it was a nice, you know, kind of looping ball out from defence. So it's not all bad. But I just I just think he's going to get targeted. And Liverpool Liverpool particularly are just going to prey on him. They're going to panic him and they're going to force force him to play balls in and they're going to they're going to try and capitalise on that. I just before you come in, Ram, I just want to officially announce to our listeners we have snowballed into talking about the Norwich game as well as the Brentford game. We've sort of found ourselves here in the way that you do sometimes, and I I think it's great, you know, the two games are very closely related because so many of the players that played in both games are worthy of discussion. And Davidson Sanchez is on the table right now. Ram, you go for it and I'll come in after you. I think that was the, that's a, both, both of you have given me a good segue to go into what I was going to say about Sanchez, which is these last two games, he's not been in a situation playing against teams where he could be panicked. Um, you know, we've been, we've been generally in control of possession. And when we haven't, we still look comfortable. So I think as, as Milo said, you know, once, once we start playing these teams in the, in the, you know, these really high quality teams, that's where we might actually see him potentially come apart you know which I obviously I don't want to see but um but yeah he does that with Sanchez I think when he there's times where he looks great and then there's times where he he really doesn't look like he belongs on the pitch and you know um and I feel like against against the teams like Liverpool that's where he could he could fall that that's where we could fall down in terms of you know where mistakes are going to come in 
I just want to add this about David Sanchez. Five goals in our last two games. No goals conceded. Teams that are not Liverpool, we agree with that. Teams that are not Manchester City, teams that are not Chelsea. But they're teams that need to be beaten. They're games that we need to win. And they're important games. And he has been part of a solid understudy group there who's come in, obviously, off the back of Romero's injury to do a job. And I think overall, he's doing a decent job, possibly more so than decent. I think he's been pretty good, actually. I appreciate the weaknesses that people are pointing out, but I'd rather look at some of the strengths uh, and say that he has contributed to no goals conceded. I trust the manager in this situation to pick the best team for the games against Liverpool. And if he feels that Davison Sanchez is up to it, I back the manager. And I think that he'll have a system that makes it work. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, I think he's he's a very fashionable player, again, to, to, to look at his weaknesses. Because physically, he is an awkward man on the ball. He looks awkward it, on it's the not ball. That, it's he not does. that. He's got, he's, his first touch is poor. I mean, it's not... I think, you know, the, the point of you know, discussing matches and you know, doing this is to try and look at um, you know, what's working, what's not working, what you know, potentially their issues going forwards. No, I would agree with that. But he has got weaknesses in his game that are going to be exploited by better teams. I mean, that's the point. But it's not trying to lay into him or you know, give him a hard time or something like that. Particularly in these early stages of Conte, it's about trying to work out what Conte wants to do with the side and, and who suits that. And Sanchez isn't a natural fit for Conte. But, you know, you're, abs- you're also absolutely right that the lion's share of these players, you know, realistically, we're only going to see, you know, a couple of players, you know, come in in January, not much more than that. So the lion's share of these players, we've got to it's get through to the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, we've got to get through to the end of the season. We've got to try and get that. But it, he does really impact on how we play. And, he, you know, he's not adept at what we were doing well. You know, the cross-field diagonal balls to the opposing fo- uh, wing-back, he's not able to do. Uh, he's not able to play in possession. He can't find the quick ball up the line to, to, to his own wing-back. You know, I think there's all of these things are a problem. And, um, you know, you're right. We will have to make do with it till the end of the season. But it is an issue. I agree with that. But what I would counter with is saying that, again, we have to trust the manager. In the last two games, we've had more shots on target. We've created more chances. I believe our XG is at a higher rate. So he's finding a way to get the job done despite injuries and despite having to play players that maybe do not technically suit what he's trying to do. And chaps, come on in and, 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 and join the party if you want to. Please do. It's a good conversation. I think that, you know, that what you said, Steph, there is that he's a backup doing doing a job. And I think that that is, and he's doing a fine job, you know, for, for, considering he is a backup and he wouldn't necessarily be um, first choice. I think, I think what we're, you know, what I'm trying to say is that um, it'll be interesting to see how he fares in this system uh, against a team like Liverpool. Where I think I'm with Milo. I think I'm with Milo on this. I don't think I'm particularly intrigued enough to want to be interested. I don't want to know. <laughs> I'd rather it, I'd rather we didn't have to find out, but yeah. we probably we might have to. I think one of the things that Conte might do is to bring in an extra midfielder. So one of the ways he could help the defence is to you know maybe drop Mora for Winks, um, which is the substitution he made the first um, substitution he made on Thursday. And Winks played at the base of midfield, and it meant that Dyer didn't have to play to Sanchez. Um, you know, he had another option out, and normally it's it's Hoybier who's who's dropping deep and picking up the ball, but Hoybier isn't the best in possession. Um, so you know, may, maybe maybe Winks coming in is the idea. You know, would be an option there. He's he you know he rarely gives away possession. He's very tidy on the ball. He can bring others into play, and it might just give us a bit more bit more of a platform to play from and and help the defense. 
can we just say that John Muss had a really bad game? He did. He did yeah. have a bad game. I just want to make sure that our listeners can keep up with what we're doing. We are looking at Brentford and Norwich almost as the same game, which I, I started in fairness by saying that we won 5-0 this week. So you can somewhat blame me. But you're absolutely right, Milo. John Moss showed that he is, uh, uh, frankly, unfit to referee at this level anymore, in my opinion. So, And surely you've got something to say about that, Gareth. Come on. I've, I've never been a fan of John Moss. I'm thinking back to what happened on Thursday night. There was a couple of heavy challenges that he didn't penalise properly with yellow cards. I, I, you know, I, I can't remember. Hands around the neck of Ryle. <laughs> there was a shirt pull as well, wasn't there? And on Sunny. On Sun, yeah. Yeah. I still haven't forgiven him for um, for Palace. <laughs> <laughs> God, God, Ram, you were wa- you were waving your hand, and 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 we, and we did have to make the important point that John Moss is not fit to referee in the Premiership. So we've made that. So I just wanted to swivel back to Sanchez and just say, can we take a moment <laughs> to appreciate his Cantona esque? celebration of his goal like oh. he like he does that every week the confidence is that it is the the sign of the conti i'm glad it was you swiveling back to sanchez not sanchez swiveling back because he'd probably fall over <laughs> wow. oh oh the harshness of some people on this pod crikey my word and speaking of harshness although it was a good one uh i have to say Lucas Mora again uh you know he's such a, a fixture of conversation because on the one hand we look ahead to the likes of Liverpool playing against Liverpool and he is a player who you think, well, maybe not best suited if we want to win that game. On the other hand, you cannot deny that right now in Antonio Conte's system, he is undroppable. I mean, he is absolutely dynamic and playing to every strength that he has. That he scored, I mean, look, he scored an absolute worldie today. I'd drop him. Well, I mean, I know, no, no, I know you would. You've made it clear. You've already hurtled forward to the Liverpool game three times today to tell us that, of who wouldn't be playing, whether it be Sanchez or, or more. I'm well aware of who you wouldn't play. But I do think it's worth recognising that he is a conundrum player for us right now. Because, I, I'll whisper this quietly, uh, folks, I actually kind of agree with Milo that long term, I do think he is a player that is wholly upgradable. I really do. But right now, he's looking at me week in, week out and showing me no, I'm not. I'm doing it. Against these kind of opponents, I think he's fine. But again, against better teams, when we need to be cleverer with the ball, I think he's a, I think he's a risk. Yeah, I, I agree with that one. He has been and he always will be a moments player. I mean, today, an incredible moment. That could well be our goal of the season come May. It seems that we're very, very reliant on him having these moments, though. And on Thursday night, he was very, very quiet, which may not be his fault. Mm. That may be more of a systemic issue. But you just don't know what you're going to get with him. And he's, well, you, 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 sorry, you do, you do know what you're going to get with him. You're going to get a one in 10. So one time in 10, he'll do something incredible as he did today. Um, but the other nine times, you know, the second touch will be a tackle. Mm. And it's just not someone that you can rely on in the longer term. Now, at the moment, we, we're now using our wing backs in more advanced positions, which is which is great because it should create more space. Sure, we'll come on to Kane, but there are some real issues, and I've got some real concerns around Harry Kane. So that third forward is is really really key to us. And I think yeah, said so in, in games like this, um, Lucas Moura can be really really effective, but you can't rely on him and you can't trust him to to be your match winner. Yeah, I think. Um... As as we progress under Conte, I think that, you know, much like Sanchez, I think, you know, uh, Murrah will get more found out in this system. He's our most explosive player 
at the moment and he will create something out of nothing and you know and we are quite reliant on him at the moment to do that um but i think once once um the squad as a whole finds its feet um within the system i think that's where we'll start to see more of a the reverted lucas which is you know um a decent squad player but definitely not a starting 11 caliber so that was his yeah. first goal in 23 premier league games today the first one since scoring against burnley back in february he scored oh, wow. he scored in the cup since then and the the, the the Villa game was maybe a bit unfortunate because if Matt Target hadn't put it into his own net, then Lucas Moura would have done. Uh, but still, you look at that as an overall stat, and for a, you know for a player who's we're going to be so reliant on, to, if he's only going to score once every twenty three games, that's that's an issue. That that's an insane stat. Mm. I had no idea that that was the last time he scored the Premier League goal. He's never been prolific though, has he? I, I haven't I haven't been able to get hold of the uh, the figures for um, today's game but on Thursday night his pass completion rate was 53.6% and that's by far and away the worst in the team the the second the second closest to that is um is Lloris on 60 well quite so when you were talking about Davo there I was thinking to myself crikey Lucas makes him look like Pele half the time so. <laughs> no I mean but in fairness that's not the point you're making it's, a, it's about where they are on the pitch and I think what I was saying about uh, Sanchez is quite often is it's not not actually his pass it's it's two passes on from that because he plays someone I, into a into a dangerous position it was just a cheap jag at your expense <laughs> you don't need to justify it I, I mean you, if you carry on saying. like this Steph you're going to force me to bring the data out I've got the figures here <laughs> Oh, oh no. Steph, what are you doing? Oh, we can spend the next me. 20 minutes going it's through a, it's it. It's a if tantalizing you want. moment on the pod. Do I tease the tiger or do I lay back off? No. I mean, in all seriousness, I think we're all in agreement that, you know, long term or short long term, even, he is an upgradable mm. player who will be upgraded. It's too important a position not to be, but he's doing something right now, which is very important. I think one of the things that is worth thinking about though if we look at that side of the field so we've talked about Sanchez having a heavy first touch you know we've talked about Mora not being you know not being great on the ball either in terms of you know his passing obviously he's, he's very dynamic when he's running with the ball but with passing Royal I think Royal had a bit of a, a tough game on on Thursday partly because of who he had around him Jaffet today didn't have a great game but if you start looking at that right hand side there you're looking at a load of players there who aren't particularly good on the ball and it makes us lopsided. Let's stick to the right-hand side for a minute, actually. And let's talk about the fact that we did see the ghost of White Hart Lane <laughs> come on today. Um, a player who, once again, I think we're all agreed is shippable and probably will be shipped at the end of the season. And, of course, I'm talking about Doherty, who, who came on. And in fairness, I felt uh, had a very competent, probably his most competent game for us for some time, uh, playing in a role that, you know, is a role that he used to play for Wolves. So I think, you know, and obviously Milo Milo is talking with me about this during the week. I mean, there are some differences in how he performed that role for Wolves versus how Conti wants that role performed in a Spurs shirt. Having said that, let's just agree that he was competent today and it may be a good sign that maybe he can carry us through to the end of the season as a backup right wing back. Do we feel that's fair comment or not? Yeah, he was competent um I think we have to caveat this to say we he came on for the last 20 minutes against the team who were bottom of the league when we were already three goals ahead but yeah I mean I, I felt that instinctively he was in the right positions that you'd want a player as a right wing back to be in so he was probably on average 10 or 15 yards further up the pitch and he was providing far better angles for us to play um it was his pass to Kane who got the shot off that Cruel saved went out for the corner that we scored the second goal from um so he, you know he must have been doing something right just I mean just watch 
watching him, he, he looks very, very hesitant at the moment. Clearly, his confidence is absolutely shot. It feels like he takes a touch, then he has to set himself and make sure the ball's in exactly the right spot before he'll even consider passing the ball. And of course, that you would want um, to be, him to become far more instinctive before you'd rely on him. But um, there are going to be going, we are going to play that cannon fodder down the bottom, and there is going to be there is going to be a role for him. You just you said that thing about him looking like scared and somewhat like lack of confidence. I just had this flashing image that he does somewhat look like a very gaunt and paranoid expressed Jazz, jazz Coltman killing jokes sometimes. He's got those wide eyes and that very, very sort of gaunt face like Jazz had in, 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 in the 80s where it just looks like he's on the edge of some sort of psychotic So not, not for the same reasons, I, mean, I hope. Sometimes. <laughs> um, by the way uh just it has nothing to do with anything but jazz coleman has roared back to full health and has a fantastic mural in cheltenham right now anyway back to normal programming so just on today's performance so dirty so he misplayed he made 24 passes and misplaced eight of them when he was on so but he was okay 24 so two-thirds of his passes were accurate yeah i can do simple math but that's not great so if you compare no, it isn't when you break it down, actually. <laughs> so Jaffet, so on for longer, it was two out of 27. So he wasn't on the ball as much. But I think, you know, I think it's fair to say Jaffet was very, very conservative with the ball. So, yeah, I, I, I thought he was okay, um, which is probably about as good as we can expect from him. I, in terms of his suitability for the system, I think the conversation we were having during the week, Steph, was around, you, you'd read an article around, you know, how good he was at Wolves. Um, three years ago, and at Wolves, what he did, he he cut in field, so he'd go up 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 pitch and cut in field, and and then the other thing he did was coming at the far post um, when the when attacking was on the other side. Coming at the far post could be useful for Conte, and I think he'll like that. Cutting in field is an issue, particularly on that right side, because Mora cuts inside, and what Conte wants is he wants the five channels, um, vertical channels on the pitch occupied. So to stretch a defence. So if Doherty cuts inside, he needs someone else to go outside, and Mora can't do that. You know, it might work if you had Lachelso there. That might work. Brian might be able to do it. Bergwin possibly, but you know, you're struggling a bit. There isn't anyone really who's who's natural at that. And what he wants is the fullbacks on that side. I think you you need someone who can, who can go down the line and get a ball in, and that's not really Doherty's game. But you know, if we're setting the bar at capable understudy until May, then possibly i think he uh, i thought he was you know he was uh, okay when he came on as well um without being spectacular i do wonder how much of that maybe elevated him just because of Jaffet's performance which admittedly it's not his favorite position and i made the point earlier that it, fe- it felt like in a standard right back position Jaffet gets forward much more than today when he had actual license to get forward and he just he didn't want to go past that halfway line um so doc Doherty coming on and pressing further forward probably made him elevated him, you know, into in into seemingly having a um, a better performance than maybe he did. I did notice a few times though that he did get himself into some good positions out wide, and he was calling for the ball three or four times, and no one passed to him uh, again. Whether that's just they didn't see him, whether that's a lack of confidence in in him. Um, but he did try and cut inside a couple of times and get the ball there, as you said, Milo. And I found that it 
kind of it's it crowded that area um and we didn't have the outlet on the, uh for you know further wide um and it was very noticeable those those channels that uh you talk about with in conti's system it was noticeable when when he came in that we suddenly had nothing on that right hand channel yeah it makes it easier for the defense basically because they've got less space to defend mm. so we've covered the right let's go to the left and let's talk about if not the what well, i think he actually is competing with eric dyer for you know player of the conti reign so far i'm talking about ben davis chaps i think this is just a chance for us to eulogize the work that ben davis has done and uh, i was actually quite tickled i kicked this off because milo and i were talking before we got on record and i've always had in my mind that conti wants an aspilicueta type player out there and milo was saying that in his press conference he referred to davis in aspilicueta-esque terms mm-hmm. And I think it's a fairly good starting point for uh, talking about him right now. So who wants to lead off on the Ben Davis, uh, you know, thumbs up? Yeah, there's been a clamour for for years to see Ben Davis playing a back three. And of course, we've never had a system or a manager that's really wanted to play a back three until now. So really, this is his his chance to excel and to build on what he's done very well for Wales over a number of years, uh, playing that left side of of, of a three. I don't think he's suited to the fullback position now and I don't think he's, he's suited to a wing back um, either anymore so this position really could be the making of him we could see we could get another good couple of years out of Ben Davis you know bear in mind he's already been he's been with us since 2014 um, he was one of the first players that we bought under under Pochettino and this just could be the evolution of Ben Davis what I've been really impressed with is that he, he is confident on the ball um, he does like a give and go he is um I mean, he he popped up. It was his assist for Sonny today, where he played that little give and go, and then played the ball into Sonny in the area. Um, so I think we're going to see more from Ben Davis in that position. I think he will still be Mister Seven out of Ten every week. I don't think he's going to be spectacular. He's not going to catch the eye in the same way that I think Romero will, who will be on the other side of that back three with him. But yeah, I, I think we've found a really, really, really good home for him. I think of all the players uh, in the squad um, since Conte's arrived, I think that uh, Ben's actually been the one that has noticeably um, really relishing um, working under him. And he seems to grow further in stature every game under Conte. And I, you can tell that he's just relishing being on the pitch at the moment, you know, and he's, he's getting forward well. He's, he's uh, alongside being solid at the back. And, you know, I think this position could be, the, you know, the sign of Ben 2.0. I'm, I'm, I apologise now, Steph. I am going to mention he should, who should not be named. But uh, I remember Frank Lampard once saying, telling an anecdote about Mourinho where when Mourinho first came to Chelsea. And Lampard was, you know, he was, he was a good player at that point. But uh, Lampard t- um, said he, he was coming out of the shower and Mourinho was just standing there. And apparently he turned to him whilst he was butt, you know, butt naked and said, you are the best midfielder in the world. Um, and you just need to show it. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I do wonder whether Conti has done the same to Ben Davies and said, you are the best player in the Premier League. And because that's how Ben's playing at the moment. He's got the confidence of playing in that, uh, in he, that way. He no doubt has said that, but he certainly isn't waiting around the showers at White Hart Lane for <laughs> Ben Davies to come out naked to tell him. Antonio's got much more class than that. Why are you doing that when you're talking about people walking out of the showers? <laughs> just for the just for the listeners uh it was you know the sign when someone's saying someone's got something small 
that that was the uh, the hand gesture that Steph and, was making. And, and actually, I'd like it to be noted that that hand gesture was because uh, Milo had just asked to come in, and I was cutting him off, and I wanted to very politely make it clear that it was going to be a very small cut in. So I was trying to be polite, not gesturing the size of anyone's penis. Uh, anyway, that being said, let's get back to the matters at hand, shall we? And Ben Davis, Milo, you have—I know you've got some. I know you've got a brilliant thing to point out. It was something uh, that was—it's it, great. Davis has been excellent since um, Conte came in. I think after Dyer, uh, he's been our most consistent and best player. Uh, he's been great getting forwards. I think that any defender playing on that side, where you've got Reggie. Well, you know, Cess today, Sun and Davis coming up there. It's it's, it's really going to be really difficult to play against. That overload there is 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 really difficult for teams. And yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, we're talking about how the right side isn't so great in terms of um, players you know, with technique, and the complete opposite is true of the left hand side. That's a real handful for anyone. There was a great interview uh, with Davis in the Athletic during the the week. Uh, he comes across really well in the whole thing. The one of the things that um, I thought was really interesting was, as I say, he talks about how he got a, a, a 2-1 in an economics degree from the Open University uh, recently, um, which he was asked as Amazon wanted to include in All or Nothing, and he refused um to to let he refused to let them include it because I think basically he just wants to wanted to be you know didn't wanted it to be under the radar really didn't want it to be the focus of anything but you know he's clearly a smart lad and uh, thinks about the game a lot and I think that's the other thing that I really took from the interview was him talking about the last three permanent managers and kind of slightly differences of approach he clearly thought about the game clearly analysed the game and could see kind of the pros and cons or the you know the reasons why our various different managers have taken different approaches you you got the impression that he'll have a good you know good career in the game after he's finished playing yeah superb and uh, and uh, to that point actually and i hate to give this newspaper any uh, credence whatsoever but the daily mail did actually manage to get a very good story in with eric dyer recently where he uh, says some some very, very good stuff that I would suspect is along the same lines as uh, what Ben Davis is thinking, um, you know, about what's going on, what has gone on and where the club is at. And uh, it's no surprise that both of these players are absolute cornerstones of the Antonio Conte uh, new era. Uh, let's just get into three more uh, players before we move on, because we do have to move on. I'll very quickly just say, and you can all agree, because I know we do, Oliver Skip. Another solid game, mm -hmm. really strong. Yeah, proving to be yep. indispensable at this point, I think. Um, so, And the two players I think we should maybe spend a little time talking about would be Ryan Session and Harry Kane, uh, both for, for maybe slightly different reasons. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, young Ryan first, uh, who, for my money, played his most confident and uh, certainly self-assured game for us since he, since he arrived from Fulham. I think it could. I mean, if it seems like... Um... Region's not going to be, you know, it, it, it wasn't too serious today. I think it could have been um, just a, just a nice nice stroke of luck that maybe he went off today and Cesc came on um, and showed us what he can do as a, as a very reliable backup. You know, I thought he was really bright. He um, he, he he got forward well. He tracked back. He was. Um, he was always looking to make something happen. And, you know, I think it would do his confidence the world of good because obviously he was sent off in uh, in the Europa Conference League and that would, have, that would have been quite a setback for him mentally, I think, especially as he's trying to stake a claim within the squad. I don't think he did his chances any harm today. Um, 
and he he was basically doing the things we expected of him um when he came in you know um and and I think he'll be a reliable backup for Reggie I think there is a you know there is a difference in quality at the moment for sure but in terms of in terms of his showing today uh, I think it could have been a bit of a stroke of luck and you know maybe Conti seeing something in him as well um so yeah good performance yeah I'd agree with that I think it was probably his best performance in a Spurs shirt today um I watched him a bit for Hoffenheim last season and um he played well for them but um, I thought it was really good, and I agree with Ram. It was probably needed after the um, the Mora game. Uh, I'd been hoping that he'd get a chance in uh, as a sub in one of the games, you know, soon after that. But yeah, I thought it was really good. I, the greatest compliment I can I can give him is that I don't think we particularly missed Reggie when he went off, which is uh, pretty high praise. Yeah. yeah, I think it's easy to forget how young he is as well. I mean, he's younger than Jeff Tanganga. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it won't be a moment he'll particularly savour. But when he was sent off against Mura, I mean, just with a close up on his face, you realise how young you know, he's, he's essentially. Mm. You know, he's, he's still a kid here, and he's got a lot of football still in front of him. And look, he's not going to go on. I'd be very surprised if he goes on to achieve the things that Gareth Bale did but just remember um, how the similarities between Bale's career at Spurs when he first came in um, initially played a few games then really drifted away he was completely in the periphery for a long time um, and no mm. one really thought there was any future for him at the club and so they were at a similar age at the you know at that time as well so um, he needs to get some games under his belt he needs to feel that he's got a manager who believes in him um, and that the players around him trust him as well but um, yeah, let's let's look positively to the future for him and, and hope that what we've seen today is the start of something really good for him. And uh, I agree with all of that. Uh, and we move now to, well, he's a talking point for most weeks. Uh, he's been a talking point all summer and he somehow still continues to be a talking point, possibly not for the reasons we'd like him to be. I'm talking, of course, about Harry Kane, who, uh, you know, look, again, it was another strong performance. I mean, he did some he did some great work with the ball. He did some great work in deeper areas, as he has been doing under Antonio Conte. But at the critical times, when you expect him to really seal the deal and score, uh, once again, his touch has deserted him. And I just before you guys come in and give your thoughts on this, I wanted to ask if anybody else feels, I think he looks a little skinnier than he has for a long time. And I'm wondering if he's sort of adjusting to his own physicality uh, and again the training regimen I mean is there anything in that or am I just seeing things that don't exist to justify the fact he's just woefully off form I haven't noticed anything particularly different with his physique um, I don't doubt that 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 may be an issue though but I'm I'm officially worried about Harry Kane now he's gone seven Premier League games without a goal that's the longest streak he's gone since he established himself in in the first team at Spurs without scoring and he's some of the things he does with his back to go, and he hit a couple of passes on Thursday night that thought, yeah, this, we've still got this world-class player at the moment. But just things aren't happening for him when he's facing goal. He's not taking chances that he thought he was. He's not getting away from defenders. And he looks a little bit like the centre-forward that I think we thought we were getting when he first came through, where we would probably all put him in the same bracket as Rory Allen and, and Lee Barnard. Um, now... He's got enough credit in the bank that, you know, he could go the rest of the season without scoring another goal and he's still going to be on our team sheet, quite rightly so, in the first game next season if he continues to be a Spurs player. Um, but at the moment, um, he's, he's just not taking chances that you'd expect him to take 
the Harry Kane of last season, the year, or the Harry Kane of the last six and a half years, would have scored four goals in the last two games with the chances that he had. And I think it's gone on long enough now over a period of what seven games where you think maybe maybe he has passed his peak now. All great strikers stop scoring goals and stop taking chances at some point. And there's now a, a, a growing concern in the back of my mind that maybe this is just Harry's point that he's reached. And he's reached it earlier than we thought he was going to. I don't know if I'd, I... I'll agree with you, Gareth, in that I am worried about him. I don't know if I can go as far as to say that this this is... You know, we've hit Pete Kane and he's now on the downward spiral. He's definitely not sulking anymore. Um, he is trying. Um, and I think he what he's getting away with at the moment is the fact that on most most match days, he's still one of, if not the best player on the pitch in terms of pure quality. But... I, I am I am worried about the, the chances that he's 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 missing and there you know some of the some of the decision making that is going through his head at the moment I'm not it's 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 not the Harry Kane I know and I, I said this in a previous pod I know I hold him up to a much higher standard that he set himself um, and I and I would I was happy to go along with that well he's he's just off form but I, how when was the last time Harry Kane was this um off form for any period of time like he is at the moment so i don't know whether it's uh he's on the way down but i wonder whether and this could be quite this is quite a strong statement but whether his time at tottenham might naturally be coming to an end and this is what we're seeing i'm not particularly worried i mean on the on his weight staff i mean i felt that he's looked a little heavy for the last couple of seasons and certainly at his peak under potch he was very very trim and i don't think he's he's looked that so if he is losing weight, I can't say I've noticed, but if he is losing weight, then I think that would be good. I think um, Alina Kane will be a sharper Kane. Looking at his stats over the last couple of games, I think that, I think they're improving. I think you know, he had five shots today um, against Brentford, um, two shots, three key passes. I thought his all-round game on, on Thursday was excellent. The uh, blind pass he did over his shoulder out to Royale um, was superb. I mean, it's as good as anything he's done at any stage in his career in terms of play, dropping deep on Thursday. Um, against Leeds, he had, he had four shots. You know, his XG is creeping up. And I don't see any signs, you know, earlier in the season, people were questioning his effort. I don't think there's any question of his effort currently. I think he's working hard and certainly working hard for the team. And I think, you know, form is a funny thing. You know, when you hit a rut, you're off form. It's difficult. And, um, you know, sometimes it just takes, you know, one game or one goal to, to turn that around to get it going again um so i think i think it'd be a mistake to write him off too early i think people um pay too much attention to you know shorts runs of form or you know go to extremes about talking about players whether they're um you know great or rubbish or you know arriving or finished based on a you know a small number of games um and i think you know if he's doing the right things i think the goals will come and i think he's doing the right things at the moment well just to ask you before we go to rem at what point would you be concerned with his uh, lack of form? Uh, how, how many more games would you give him to not hit the net before you would start questioning? And I, look, I appreciate your point, and I think it's a very fair point. I'm just interested to know what your threshold is personally. I'd play him to the end of the season unless we bring a striker in January because we haven't got anyone else. <laughs> that wasn't my question. My question wasn't whether you play him to the end of the season. I think even Gareth said he stays in the team, whether he's scoring. I mean, he's quite rightly on talent but when would you be concerned about him not hitting the back of the net um I think all the time that the team is performing well and we're getting goals I'm not too bothered you know I I think actually as a front three they're functioning quite well um I'd like to see a bit more of him and son together you know 
my fourth attempt to bring us on to the Liverpool game. Um, I'm 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 interested to see this whilst not committing to a moment statistically when you'll be worried about Harry Kane not scoring goals Um, to get that in but anyway I I, I think if the team are playing well he's performing his his role within the team and we're scoring I'm not too bothered where the goals are coming from but I think that if he carries on doing the right stuff then he will get goals it will happen but Myla, his role within the team ultimately is to score those goals. And, and as of this season, we're not scoring enough goals bar like today. And, you know, we obviously we scored five this week. But, but until then, that's not that's not what's been happening. So, so but, what I was saying is that, you know, as long as we're as long as we're scoring goals, which we are. And we were talking about kind of I'm talking about since Conte came in and his role is different now to what he was doing under Nuno. So as long as the team is functioning and he's playing well within that, then that then that's fine. Obviously, I want him to get goals, but I think if he carries on doing the right stuff, he will get goals. It will happen. You know, his goal scoring form, you know, outside the Premier League is pretty good this season. And I know some of that stat padding with England, but he scored some, you know, he scored quite a lot of goals this season. So yeah, I I think it's just one of those things. I think form is a a really funny thing. It's a, you know, a discussion I'd like us to have on the, on here one time about form because I, I think it's fascinating. You know, sometimes, you know, a player gets gets the yips. They get they get stuck in a rut, and it's difficult to get out of. And no one, you know, quite knows what it is. But I'm, I'm pretty confident that if he, you know, if he if he keeps carries on doing what he's doing, he's going to get a goal. And I think it will turn around pretty quickly when he does. I think to find some middle ground with you on that, like obviously last season he was, you know, golden boot and he got the most assists as well. So it's such a, it's such a stark contrast to this season and what, with what happened in the summer. So there was a, there's a lot of things going on around, um, you know, his, his performances for Tottenham that aren't necessarily as clear as mud to, you mm. know, um, uh, to us as, as it might be to, to him and, and the rest of the squad. And you're right. He is, you know, he, that, that, that pass in the last game, in Brentford I, I was that was just majestic but I think for me ultimately for me Kane is a goal scorer and he scores he's, he scores goals from every single position in every way imaginable he's a world-class goal scorer so I think for me I just want him to go back to being a world-class goal scorer mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean the other thing that I've got to drop in there about Harry Kane is that he and that's the reason why he's on the decline or his regress is just the sheer amount of football that he's played year in like 12 months a year for the last what three or four years now probably off the back mm. of mm. um certainly the yeah. world cup in 2018 and the emotional toll that mm. that undoubtedly um and yeah. the way that affected him through what happened with england in the summer um so he he probably is due a good two or three months off you know, at some point which he just hasn't had this year but it's very interesting that you say that uh gareth because Eric Dyer in that Daily Mail interview today uh, was saying that the hangover from losing the Champions League final was massive mm. Into, mm. to the point that it just continued into the following season. It was like, you know, you didn't have any time to almost grieve over it. You kind of had to get on with it, which quite rightly you would. And so to your point, it's very, very fair that, you know, Harry Kane got so close to winning the mm. Euros on top of all that football. By the way, the pass we're talking about against Brentford, that is is the pass that he played against Seattle <laughs> all those years ago in Pochi's first ever game. It was that ball, and that was the one where we all looked and were like, Christ almighty, there is a fucking player there. And <laughs> it would serve us well to remember, of course, that there is still a tremendous player in there, and he's he will come back, I'm sure. But I just, when he missed that, he missed that uh, chip, it was just, ah. Oh. It was a fair way out, though. It's the third time he's gone for a goal like that yeah. in this season, isn't it? He seems to be trying for those more and more. So, 
Yeah. Anyway, I really hope that um, it's going to be t- it's going to be tough in January as to whether we can do it. But I really hope that we can bring in his long term successor in January, and that they've got kind of six months to bed in. You know, if we can get Vlaovic in in January, I think that yeah. lifts the weight off him a bit. He's got six months to settle, and then we're in a position to try and sell Kane in the summer. Um, you know, potentially bring in a, another striker, so we've got a bit of cover there, and and uh, yeah, a few more options. All right. So just to round this off, if we can, chaps, let's just also say Sunny once again another strong performance and generally speaking uh you know we have to be satisfied with this last week at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club you know today's performance again Spurs 3 Norwich 0 yep. Lucas Sanchez son when was the last time we scored three goals in a game and Harry was not on the score sheet that's one for you statisticians out there I'm sure someone's got that uh up their sleeve we don't on hand so you can let us know so we are talking about oh, we just were talking about players that might be coming in in January why don't we talk about some of the ones that got away. Have a little bit of fun looking back at the near misses. Players that were close to joining but managed to escape Daniel Levy's steely grasp. The ones where we had been negotiating all summer only for Daniel to half the fee and ask for it to be paid in instalments. Preferably with some green shield stamps thrown in there if you're old enough to remember those. Um, Over 20 years in the final 15 minutes of the transfer window or where a bigger club just comes in as we are preparing to take the photo of them holding up the shirt. I mean, it doesn't always turn out to be bad. Uh, There's been the Schneiderlins. There's been the Stuart Downings. There's been the Sae Berahinos. I mean, you know, some bullets have been dodged. It has to be said. Uh, However convinced we were that they were the answer at the time. But we have each picked a player and we're going to talk through what they could have done, how close they were to joining, whether they really wanted to join us and whether they really would have made a difference. And to kick us off, we're going to go to you, Milo, with your selection. So I'm going to talk about Eden Hazard. So back in 2012, we'd had a turbulent few months. We'd stood by Harry Redknapp through his court case against HMRC over accepting untaxed bonus payments from um, when he was at Portsmouth. And shortly after being cleared, John Terry did a racism. It's so strange how these things happen to him. <laughs> And he lost the England captaincy, and Fabio Capello walked because he felt he'd been undermined. Harry Redknapp spent the next few months hitching his skirt at the FA, being cheered on by Fleet Street. Our form suffered whilst uh, Harry was focused on other things, um, and the players were wondering who'd be taking charge next season. So having been third at the point when Capello walked on the 8th of February, we went on to win only five out of the 14 remaining games, um, losing five and drawing four, and we ended up finishing fourth. Everything would be fine, though, uh, as long as Chelsea lost the Champions League final to Bayern Munich. There wasn't anything to worry about there. The game was taking place in Munich at the Alliance Arena and Chelsea were managed by Roberto Di Matteo and had been underwhelming all season. Uh, Chelsea ended up winning 4-3 on penalties after the game was drawn 1-1. Hazard had been courted by both clubs uh, and made it clear that he wanted Champions League football. So Chelsea winning the Champions League meant that fourth place in the league ended up being a Europa League position for the first time. And so something so unjust to UEFA changed the rules after that. That summer, we lost uh, Modric, Raphael van der Vaart, uh, Nico Kranjau, and Hazard would have been an ideal replacement for any of these and uh, would have been very well suited to uh, incoming manager AVB style. So at the time, Harry said, um, I went to France, met Hazard in a hotel room. Three hours I was with him. That's probably why he didn't sign. <laughs> <laughs> And Hazard said, it's true that Tottenham tempted me because it was a young team which was third in the league. So unfortunately, the end of the season didn't go well. They didn't reach the Champions League, which tipped the balance. Um, he said, nobody was really a fan of Chelsea, uh, Chelsea's game that season. And then say, he goes on to say about the kind of some of the other players that Chelsea were looking to bring and um, basically how, how you know, not finishing in the Champions League made all the difference. I think um, 
you know, we, we look at those players that, you know, if, if, if you, you put him in place of you know, Cranchar or, um, or, or Van der Vaart, you know, that's really setting us up for, uh, for quite a way forwards, you know, quite, quite a long time after that. You know, particularly, you know, kind of later on in his Chelsea's career, he, he became a very potent goal scorer, but he was always very creative and, you know, a fantastic player on the ball and would have been a really, really Spurs player. You know, he's exactly the kind of player we like. And, you know, the thought of him with the Magnificent Seven and, you know, Ericsson and Lamella and some of those players would have been, would have been fantastic. I'd say, you know, later on, Potts would have loved him. Is there any truth to the rumour that Harry spent the whole of their meeting calling him Mickey Hazard? <laughs> <laughs> could that possibly be a reason? He thought, oh, I can't be having this. <laughs> you do wonder, but no, it's a well-presented case. He would have been a great player, I think. Uh, uh, undoubtedly a sliding doors moment and one that we missed. Thank you very much for that, Harry. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I won't, I won't, I'll try and be succinct as possible. That just you bringing back that season before, though, just makes me angry even now. That was the yes. mind the gap. We can't season go there. We can't go well. there. I've we won't down. go there. Deep breath. But Deep yeah, breath. I'm, I'm with but, you. We're all with you, brother. <laughs> We're all with yeah, you. I mean, <laughs> oh, I took me years to get that out of my system. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that um, Hazard and uh, alongside the player I'm going to mention in my in my segment, but um, Hazard would have been the difference for us in terms of we finished fifth the following season, mm-hmm. that we could have signed him, that he, we would have finished in the top four. He was that much of a difference player, uh, difference maker as a player. Um, and just to go even further forward in our sliding doors moment, if we had signed Hazard, there wouldn't have been his two goals in the Battle of the Bridge and we could probably be, uh, we probably would have had... Uh, Premier League title on our hands as well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Gareth, anything? Uh, yeah, no, it's that perfect sliding doors moment, isn't it? That he, yeah, he could well have come to us at Chelsea, not won the Champions League that summer. And yeah, he would have been an incredible player for us alongside alongside Bale in that team. Great. Oh, <laughs> well, Ram, we've come to the player that you have chosen that somehow sort of kind of figures in the same slipstream. Yeah, absolutely does, because it was the same window. It was, uh, so my player is Jean Moutinho, um, and, but for uh, some missing details and a wayward fax machine, we were literally minutes away from signing him, and he definitely wanted to come to us, and he, it seemed like he was really excited to. He's even spoken about it in, in the latter years, about almost joining us. Um, and, you know, uh, Milo's already given the background, you know, we, we finished uh, fourth uh, the season before but lost out due to Chelsea winning the competition at that um, in that window Luka Modric left us for Real Madrid which uh, left a gaping hole in our midfield as well as you know Van der Vaart um, and, Cran- and Cranchar uh, for that matter um, and I think Moutinho at this time would have been an almost like-for-like replacement for uh, with Modric exquisite range of passing an eye for the assist to the assist um, and the way he created space for himself and was a few steps ahead of the rest of the field um, overall just an exceptionally uh, gifted player um, we finished two th- uh, that season in fifth place in AVB's first season. It was our highest ever points tally, though, at the time, 72 points. 
with Matinho, I think he could have made the difference in us finishing top four in the same way Hazard would have. Um, and I think these fine margins could have helped us kick on at a much faster pace than we eventually did under Poch, would have established us more in that top four scene, potentially in, um, you know winning some pots along the way. Um, and if you look at Matinho now, he's still playing since he almost joined us. He, um, he went to Monaco first. He won the European Championships with Portugal. He played six out of seven times in that, in that um, European Championship winning team. Um, and he's still turning out impressive performances for Wolves right now in the Premier League. He was their player of the season in the 1920 uh, campaign. Um, so, you know, whether or not he would have used us as a stepping stone from, you know, to, to go to um, a bigger club at the time, I don't know. But um, I feel like he would have been a difference maker. The floor is yours. I think the, on both of those players, I think the other thing we need to bear in mind is kind of AVB and then and kind of how it ended and, mm-hmm. you know, him, I'd say the following season, kind of retreating into his shell and kind of withdrawing a bit. And I think maybe if he'd had players that suited his game and um, and the players that he wanted, you know, maybe that might not have happened. Oh, Moutinho was the one that he demanded. He absolutely banged his fists on the table and said, I want him. He's the guy I want. I mean, I, that was his, and he didn't get him. And it's hard to not think that from that moment on, his relationship with Daniel was only going to go in one direction. I, mean, I think with Moutinho, it was down to, if there was an extra half an hour of the window, it was done. But we are back at Daniel's transfer dealings, aren't we, in a sense? I mean, if you know your manager wants a player, get it done before you go down to those fine margins. I mean, isn't that surely what what, what we're saying? It was It was so last minute, and, it, and I feel like it didn't have to be either. Um, and it was the point, if I remember correctly, on Sky Sports News, even the, the ticker, there was talks of, oh, Moutinho's done. Oh, maybe it's not mm. done. No, no, we think it's close. Um, it's done. It's signed. He just needs some uh, details. And then, you know, it went all the way through. And then it just suddenly was like, no, actually, we, we missed out on him. Yeah. I mean, so then looking at who did play for us that season, we had some... Scott Parker played 21 league games that year. Tom Huddleston played 20. Sandro played 22. Jake Livermore played 11 times as well. And well, certainly the first three of those were all players I think we really like at Spurs, but Moutinho was on a different level to all of them at that point in his career. Mm, yeah. And you, you're absolutely right, Ram. You look at small margins there. We got 72 points that year. I think you put Moutinho into that midfield, that point tally becomes 75, 76 points straight away. Um, so the only thing just to point out, though, is that the player we did eventually sign that window was Moussa Dembele. And uh, let's not forget yeah. that it probably took between AVB and, and even Pochettino three years to work it out to use him properly but perhaps if Matinho yeah. had come in we wouldn't have had Dembele in who was such a huge part of our midfield in in, in the great peak Pochettino years mm. but I am tickled by the concept that actually with those two players we might have ended up with closer to 80 points and maybe winning the league but oh. <laughs> having having said that <laughs> Let's move on, Gareth, to your selection, uh, which is uh, a name of intrigue, uh, magic, and uh, oh my word, there's a story here. Yeah, so I'm talking about Rivaldo, um, the Rivaldo, by the way, who very, very nearly joined us in 2002. Now, do you know, the more I've read up about this, the more I think we probably dodged a bullet here. However, <laughs> let me give you some background. So summer 2002, Glenn Hoddle was the manager. Um, we'd lost in the League Cup final that year and we'd finished typically in around mid-table 
we didn't have much to spend and we had a very aging squad. So our attack or our forward line was Teddy Sheringham, who was mid-30s, Les Ferdinand, who was only a couple of years younger, um, Stefan Everson and Sergei Rebrov, who I think we both appreciate they weren't going to score enough goals for us. And then we had Gus Poye in attacking midfield, who as well was in his in his 30s. Now, 2000, it was a really embarrassing summer for us. I mean, more so because Arsenal had just won the double that year as well. Um, but we couldn't sign anyone. We desperately needed forward players and we couldn't sign any. Anyone. We had a guy called Kubo. There you go. There's a name, a blast from the past here. Um, who we'd taken on trial and it impressed several times for us in pre-season but that was the height of um, of our capabilities at the time was attracting Kubo to come and play for us who, who ultimately wouldn't um, now of course 2002 was the time before Twitter and, and social media and there was a few good um, chat forums out there including Glory Glory of course um, but what it meant is you, I mean, you weren't really privy to this information unless it was in the mainstream media so much to our surprise, um, this news broke that Rivaldo, who was at the peak of his powers at that point, he'd been a part of Brazil's World Cup winning team in 2002. He scored against England in the quarterfinal. He'd laid on one of the goals for Ronaldo in the final. He was a 1999 Ballon d'Or winner as well. Um, and his contract had, had run out at Barcelona and was looking for a new club. And so totally out of left field, he revealed that he or Glenn Hoddle revealed that Rivaldo had written the club a letter to say how personally touched he was by the offer that had been made to him. But ultimately, he decided to go to AC Milan, who I think had chucked a couple of noughts on the end of the uh, the monthly salary for him. And, you know, ultimately offered him a place in the Champions League where he'd go on to win the competition the following year for them. But yeah, this letter from Rivaldo, actually, it became a source of mockery amongst Spurs uh, well, amongst our rivals, as you can imagine. So the, you almost signed Rivaldo or you almost signed a player. But had we signed Rivaldo, I don't think it would have done much for us on the field long term because actually he, he produced some very disappointing numbers at Milan. He only played, he scored five goals in 22 games and had his contract ripped up within 15 months of, of joining there. But it would have been the spectacle. So his signing, it would as a name, it would have been on the same par as when we'd signed Klinsman eight years before and you know, probably Ozzy Ardiles a few years before that. So it would have put a smile on a lot of Spurs fans' faces. Um, but ultimately, we ended up signing Robbie Keane at the end of that window, who I, th- I, think, I think we'd appreciate. Whilst he was never on the same level as Rivaldo in technical ability, um, there was some real longevity in, in Robbie Keane's career. And I think Rivaldo would have been a huge disappointment had he ended up in a lily white shirt. The psychological damage of that, uh, that letter, it made us the butt of a lot of jokes didn't it yeah I think I think we were also close well close to signing Morientes that summer I can remember Glenn Hoddle coming out in a in a press conference during mm. pre-season saying that he's spoken to Morientes the the boy really wants to come and play for us and of course it didn't happen in the end and we had egg on our face yeah. again um yeah probably you know, until Robbie Keane signed on the line on transfer deadline day. I think, Gareth, you should keep hold of those notes and put them in a capsule and bury them under the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So in after the second uh, or third Ice Age from now, in a few hundred thousand years, when people want to know, describe Tottenham Hotspur, we'll just take that capsule out and we can present it and we can go, this is what Tottenham Hotspur is all about. I mean, the letter was truly embarrassing, wasn't it? <laughs> mm. It was. But uh, but let's let's move on from uh, what was certainly uh, you're absolutely right at a doldrum moment where a major signing would have really helped both Glenn and the club's profile. We just couldn't get it done. Instead, settling for the likes of Toda, if I remember. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm going to go to a player who was one of two players that we didn't manage to get. Uh, Sadio Mane is the one that everyone talks about. 
in this window of uh, 2016. One of the players that Poch wanted, he didn't get. But my pick is Jorginho Wijnaldum. Um, he's a player who's hard to define in one sense, uh, but he's priceless in the fact that he retains possession uh, supremely and he's got excellent passing stats with regards to the simple cycling and moving of a football on a football pitch. So he's one of those players that you don't notice, but he's keeping the engine well and truly ticking over. And I mean, at Liverpool, he had consistently high you know, stats in the 80s and 90s. And I, we all know how much Jurgen Klopp valued him and, and rated him. This box-to-box water carrier with class, I suppose, you know. He could play in the left, right or centre. Metronomic quality. I mean, he had everything that we wanted. And it just seems that we could not get the wages agreed. Uh, That's the most that we've ever been able to, to find out about why this deal wasn't pushed over the line. But what we do know is it is the non-deal that forced uh, Paul Mitchell to quit. We did sign Victor Wanyama in 2016, who had, you know, a great season with us following probably our best season under Poch actually was that was that first season he was there. And many feel that uh, Musa Sissoko was an apology signing for failing to either get Mane or Wijnaldum. Um, although in the end, the Wijnaldum fee was 25 million, was quoted, and we ended up paying 30 for Musa Sissoko. So I, I, I'm just going to say that I think if Wijnaldum had signed, the biggest benefit would have been a consistent injury-free player of those qualities in an area of the pitch in a game which was vital for us, given that we had the Eriksons, Alley, Sons and Canes. I mean, you know, when you look at uh, Musa Dembele, who's just come up in conversation, and 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 Victor himself, they were always picking up knocks. Um, and I just wonder what three consistent years of Wijnaldum playing under Poch, you know, feeding the likes of Eriksson whilst winning a lot of second balls would have done. Um, uh, for me, hindsight shows that a player of that quality you know, in that role is very, very rare. And I think he would have been sensational for us. I think he would have been really good. I mean, look, hindsight being what it is, uh, it looks wonderful on paper. What I should now add is that, of course, Poch finally got his man at PSG and he looks like one of being, that deal looks like one of the big stiffies of the season because uh, kind of not able to break through the the PSG star circle there as old uh, Gigi. So, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe he'll be available again in January. And I rather glibly put, in the notes here, would Conte try to pull off a swap deal with Delhi going the other way? Uh, probably not really, actually, not at all. But it just made me chuckle to have a think about it. So, uh, so that's my that's my candidate. Wanyama was a really good signing, but he didn't make many appearances for us. Uh, yeah, his um, his time was, was very short lived, and um, the time he was actually playing of that short lived time was was very short as well. Just bringing in someone who would have been there and fit for longer, um, assuming that. Um, yeah, he, he didn't get crocs as soon as he um, put on our shirt. You know, it, it would have made a real difference. Yeah, but likewise, if Wanyama had been stayed fit, then maybe we'd be talking about that differently. I think Wijnaldum definitely was like an unsung hero at uh, Liverpool and definitely went under the radar, but he was a constant, you know, like you said, Steph, he was a constant in that team. He popped up with goals as well. I mean, he scored some absolute worldies, Wijnaldum, and he was, uh, he was just so consistent. And I think of that midfield with uh, him and Dembele um, and when Yama is, you know, kind of rotating between the three of them. And, you know, that that's a really, really strong midfield. You put Eric Dyer in there as well, potentially. And, um, you know, a few others, you've got mm. some options there, haven't you? Yeah, it was a shame. Mm. You think going back to 2016, the only reason why the only pulling power Liverpool would have had over Spurs then would have been the amount of money that they would have offered in wages. Um, and for us to end up getting Sissoka, I mean, it's like the old analogy of if you went to get the best member of Wham and ended up signing Andrew Ridgely, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Wake me up before you go, go. <laughs> 
Oh dear. What, what other pod are you going to get the likes of Killing Joke and Wham slid into proceedings? You tell me that. What other Tottenham Hotspur pod's going to give you that range? I'm telling you. And what other Tottenham Hotspur pod's going to name some of the players who could have come so close to wearing a lily white shirt as these names? The Luis Suarez's, the Williams, the Zinedine Zidane's, the Emmanuel Petit's, the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's, the Jack Grealish's, the Palo Dybala's, and, of course, one of the greatest long-running transfer sagas in Tottenham Hotspur history. I'm sure we'll be going for him in January, possibly the summer. I think it was blue-yellow, was it? Blue-yellow, was that the count? <laughs> and I'm talking about Leandro Damiel, who even at his crusty old age could surely still do a job up front as a backup striker. Go for him, Antonio. Otherwise, you're not a true Tottenham legend. Anyway, that brings to a conclusion that segment. Let's very quickly and very quickly look at these two games. I think we can cover Wren in, uh, in, in... I'd like to try and cover this in under a minute, chaps. I'm going to ask each of you two questions. Ten second reply. Who should play? Do we care? Three, two, one, Ram. Um, I would say play most of our second string. I don't care because I think we've got a chance for top four. Milo? Ditto. Gareth? Yeah, I don't care. Um, I think we will win because I think Wrens have already topped the group and I think they've got bigger fish to fry um, in their domestic games next Sunday. Um, I think we'll win, but I think Vitesse will beat Moura quite heavily anyway. So therefore we'll go out and I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm with you, Gareth. I hope that that happens. And I'm also with you, Milo. I don't care. And I'm also with you, Rem. I don't care. So I know that that's most uh, unspurs-like, but before anyone starts bleating on about it, Think about this carefully. Look at where we are on the table. Look at the fact that fourth spot is wide open and there for the taking and think about the leaps and bounds we are going to take if we can have those spare times to train and do things properly and get that fourth spot. I'm just thinking about Gareth and, and you know he wants a Saturday 3pm kickoff and the only way that's going to happen is if we get kicked out of, uh, out of Europe. So it's just... <laughs> I'm just thinking of Gareth. Your your birthday benevolence is just stunning, and 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 it and it illuminates this show. How how <laughs> how, how pleasant and kind of he you. hasn't got over Norwich wearing a chain shirt today. So you know something's got to go his way. Yeah, what <laughs> you were very upset. Do they want to change their nickname from the Canaries to the Flamingos? By the way, there's something that's irritated me since <laughs> last night. We're in a bloody flamingo kit. <laughs> Oh dear! Oh god! Very good. Yes, uh, very true as well. Uh, well, we we move on now to just very briefly. We travel down to Soho on Sea. Uh, well written, Milo, to uh, play Brighton and Hove Albion. Yeah, that was a Milo line in the script. We, we write these scripts together. I like that, so I'm going to say it again. Next Sunday, we travel down to Soho on Sea to play Brighton and Hove Albion. This is going to be an interesting benchmark for how we are progressing under Antonio Conte you know look again let's keep this really tight uh who should play uh what have we thought of Brighton this season are we confident so that's three questions in one now so maybe you get a minute and a half uh three two one Gareth uh I think it'll be the same 11 as today but hopefully Emerson Royal will come back in as right wing back um I think Brighton have hit some pretty awful form they haven't won in 10 Premier League games albeit seven of those have been draws and I think we should go down there confident that we can if I think if we score we'll win Ram ditto with the team selection um and I would say I was confident um that we would get a result because of the way we're progressing until Gareth just revealed that stat and now I'm not confident because Dr Tottenham will now be at their service Milo so 
Ram's got to put fiver in the pot for saying Dr. Tottenham. We've got a, a swear box. This is how we're going to oh. fund the pod from now on. So any men, any mentions of Mourinho, <laughs> Spursy or Dr. Tottenham is a fiver in the pot. And that's how we're going to fund this from now on. And you currently owe 15 quid as well. So, <laughs> uh, <anyway. laughs> yeah, in terms of selection, I think I think I agree in terms of yeah, uh, Rael coming in for Jaffet and I think the rest probably pick themselves for this game. If he's thinking about changing things for some, you know, some of the tougher games, then maybe you want to make that change early so they get a chance to play together in the second half. And uh, am I confident? I mean, this has been a tough fixture for us these last few years. We've had some real horror shows down there. And they're a really well-drilled, you know, well-organized side. Whilst results haven't necessarily been going their way, it is going to be more of a test than we've had. You know, it's our toughest fixture so far under Conte. So I, I am confident, but I, I'm not expecting an easy game. And um, I think it will be a real, a really interesting test of of how far we've progressed and you know where we are right now. Yeah, I think after that, it should give us a better idea of yeah the following three fixtures are really tough. So it'll be really interesting to see where we are going into those. I think it'll be a case of redemption for some of the horrible luck that we've had down at Brighton, not least of which uh, Hugo Lloris suffering mm. that horrendous injury whilst conceding a, a, a bizarre own goal. And uh, I just have to make mention, uh, like everyone, of Brighton's very attractive football. I don't think it'll be enough for them. I think Antonio will outdrill them. Uh, and I do think we'll get the win. I think we'll find a way. I'm fully a believer in Antonio's ways and means. Uh, but I also must make comment somewhat spiritless, really. It might end up on the cutting room floor. But Potter, to me, looks like he will be in a Robert Eggers film very, very soon. He's beginning to look like an eccentric slightly loony beardy isn't he uh and i kind of love it i mean there's something about him where he's developing this quiet charismatic personality which frankly i think he's going to need if he wants to make the jump to manage a really big club and i say this seriously i think as a coach and a tactician he's superb i think he's yet to fully convince some of the chairmen and some of the owners of bigger teams that he's got maybe a personality that could go with that which of course sadly in the modern world is part of the job. I think one thing about this game, it would be interesting to see whether we see the kind of Conte rope-a-dope. Um, I could see him mm. quite being quite happy to let them have possession, sit back, soak it up, hit them on, you know, try and draw them on and hit them on the break. We might see a little bit of what we saw against Leeds. I agree with that. And just to round us out this week, chaps, you might have thought I'd forgotten, but I hadn't. Let's round off this week with one positive, one negative. And again, we've basically ended up looking at Brentford and Norwich as one long continuum. So take that as the, the overall focus for your one positive, one negative for this week. Three, two, one, Gareth. Uh, the positive scoring three goals and it, the positive has been the chances that we're starting to create. So three successive games now where we've created more than two or had a higher than two XG. I think the negative, and it's, it's, it's a thinly veiled negative really, but I think people need to be prepared that whilst we're in transition, we, we will get these gateway performances and they may not be scintillating watches all the time, um, but I think we've got to look at the long-term picture. Great. Milo? My positive would be Sessegnon's performance today. I thought he was very good. Um, my negative would be the quality of our second string centre-backs and their suitability for the way that Conte wants the team to play. I'm worried about it. Rem? Positive would be that there's a very clear progression um, and uh, under Conte and also that Skip has proven himself to be the heartbeat of this mm -hmm. team, um, judging by the last couple of games. The negative would be I'm still worried about Kane, Kane's um, lack of goal scoring. 
my positive is that Antonio Conte's really found a way to make a squad that has imbalance work. He's found a way to make it efficient and he's found a way to get results with it. Uh, the only negative is that we do seem to be picking up a few injuries here and there. And you've got to hope that that is something that does not continue because that could make things very sticky very quickly. Thank you very much, chaps. It's been a good one. It was interesting the way it flowed in. Those two games were so symbiotic. I, I think it was uh, really good the way that that happened. So uh, so thanks very much. Cheers, Steph. Really good. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Steph. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. So give us a follow and say hello. If you like the pod and have a spare minute, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. And if you're listening on your phone, oh, you can do it now if you wouldn't mind, please. Um, that would be very nice. Thank you very much. And we'd really appreciate it here on The Game Is About Glory. As always, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. <laughs>